It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of the murder of children, rape, sexual offenses, stalking, and suicide. Yesterday afternoon, well after we'd put the finishing touches on this episode, we got another alert from the Delphi Double Homicide Task Force. The investigators released a note announcing they were going to, quote, expand the list of social media applications used by Anthony underscore Schatz. Specifically, detectives announced that, quote, if you or someone you know communicated with the profile Anthony underscore shots on the social media application called Yellow, currently known as Yubo, please contact law enforcement at Abby and Libby Tip at CACO 
shrf.com or 765-822-3535. The part about Anthony underscore shots is nothing new. Remember, that's the name of the online persona that's been linked to both the Delphi murders and Kegan Anthony Klein, a 27-year-old Indiana man. But now police are mentioning a new platform. Ubo, formerly called Yellow, is a French social media app. It heavily features live streaming and has undergone quite a few controversies around adult predators using the app to interact with minors. In this episode, we're going to talk about internet predators. The latest news that Anthony underscore Shots was prowling on Ubo or Yellow, an app that we've never even heard of before today, underscores some of the points we'll discuss with our guest about the challenges of dealing with online predators. This latest run of news around the Delphi murders all started with a single account name, Anthony underscore Shots. Before we knew about Kagan Anthony Klein, or his father, Jerry Anthony Klein, or Tony, we knew about a different Anthony, Anthony underscore Shots. As a reminder, Kevin will read what investigators on the Delphi case released about that account back in December 2021. While investigating the murders of Abigail Williams and Liberty German, detectives with the Carroll County Sheriff's Office and the Indiana State Police have uncovered an online profile named Anthony underscore Shots. This profile was being used from 2016 to 2017 on social media applications, including, but not limited to, Snapchat and Instagram. The fictitious Anthony underscore Shots profile used images of a known male model and portrayed himself as being extremely wealthy and owning numerous sports cars. The creator of the fictitious profile used this information while communicating with juvenile females to solicit nude images, obtain their addresses, and attempt to meet them. Now, thanks to the transcript of a 2020 police interview with Kagan Klein, we know even more about the internet predation that Anthony underscore Shots carried out. We also know that this wasn't the only online persona connected with Kegan Klein. He maintained an account on Kick called Emily Ann 45, which seemingly was used to trade child sexual abuse materials. We also know that police said that Kegan Klein had numerous devices with abuse materials on them. We also know now how this all ties back to the Delphi murders the unsolved double homicide of 14-year-old Liberty German and 13-year-old Abigail Williams in Delphi, Indiana. In that same police interview, investigators revealed to Kagan Klein that they knew the Anthony underscore Schatz account was in contact with Libby German right before the murders. In fact, they'd heard from one of her friends that she was enthralled with the fake persona. One particularly chilling moment in this interview occurred when police said that the Anthony underscore Schatz account 
had communicated with one of Libby's friends after the murders, saying, I was supposed to meet that girl, but she never showed up. We still don't have every single detail about what happened in this case. But all of this information seems to point in a certain direction. It seems to indicate that an online predator killed Abby and Libby, or at least that one played some kind of role in what happened. Counter to popular perception, it's actually quite rare for internet predators to kill the children and teenagers they victimize. In a 2008 paper titled Online Predators and Their Victims, Myths, Realities, and Implications for Prevention and Treatment, which was published in the American Psychologist, researchers from the University of New Hampshire found that cases of internet predators committing forcible abduction were unusual. The researchers wrote that internet sex crimes involving adults and juveniles more often fit a model of statutory rape. Adult offenders who meet, develop relationships with, and openly seduce underage teenagers than a model of forcible sexual assault or pedophilic child molesting. The lack of frequent forcible abduction does not undermine the seriousness of such cases, though. These victims are underage. They cannot consent to sex. And the University of New Hampshire paper notes that the research suggests that internet-initiated sex crimes account for a salient but small proportion of statutory rape offenses, despite constituting a relatively low number of the sexual offenses committed against minors overall. Even cases where predators don't meet up with their victims in person can have a damaging impact. Predators posing as teenagers can engage in online enticement, which the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children defines as a broad category of online exploitation, where predators pose as peers when attempting to groom underage kids online. This can involve sextortion, which occurs when a predator manages to get a victim to send over intimate pictures, which are then used for blackmail. It can also involve a predator getting intimate pictures from a victim in order to use as child sexual abuse materials. All of that sounds very similar to the modus operandi that police have linked to Anthony underscore Schatz. While these cases rarely result in homicide, internet predators have murdered children in the past. We wanted to talk about a homicide case that involved such circumstances so that we can perhaps better understand elements of the Delphi case. That's what the murder sheet is all about on some level, looking at trends and patterns in crime. And due to our past reporting, one case immediately came to mind. We're going to speak again with Kathy Fry, a journalist with over 20 years of experience working on newspapers. We previously interviewed her in our episode, you never can forget the fiasco. 20 years ago, Kathy covered a tragic murder case where a sexual predator weaponized the internet in order to groom, abduct, and murder a 13-year-old girl named Casey Woody in Arkansas. We'll link to her series of articles titled Caught in the Web in our show notes. 
The series is a moving, in-depth look at the events that led up to Casey's death and the devastation that her murder wrought on her family and friends. Just as an additional heads up, this episode discusses the murder of Casey Woody quite a bit, and it is a deeply upsetting story. The reason we thought we'd focus on this case is because it's another high-profile instance of an adult male pretending to be a younger man online in order to lure underage girls. For those of us following the Delphi murders closely, we think it can potentially provide further insight. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, the Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout Season 1 to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is The Delphi Murders on Internet Predators. On December 3rd, 2002, Casey Woody vanished from her family's home in a forested stretch of Holland, Arkansas. She'd spent that evening in her home, instant messaging Scott, a 14-year-old from Georgia who'd become her boyfriend after they met online. At 9.41 p.m., she sent an abrupt message in response to Scott's question if she was all right. Just a single word, yeah. Then, she was gone. Casey had been home alone that night. Her father, Rick, was a police officer on duty in nearby Greenbrier, and her brother and his friend, who also lived with the family, were both out. The 13-year-old left behind her shoes and coat, despite the frigid temperatures. When Casey's brother and his friend arrived home, they became worried and called Rick. He arrived back home and found evidence of a struggle and forced entry. The family rang up local authorities. Word of Casey's disappearance spread quickly. Here's Kathy Fry. News broke that a teenager in a town about an hour away from Little Rock had been abducted. For Kathy, the situation hit close to home. She lived and worked in Arkansas, writing for the Little Rock-based Arkansas Democrat Gazette. In December of 2002, she was heavily pregnant with a daughter of her own. When she took on investigating Casey's story, the case had an emotional effect on her. 
In Kathy's journalism career, she dove into the stories that she covered to really delve into the impact. And the story of Casey Woody's life and death was no different. But in the beginning, she was just following the disturbing news along with nearly everyone else in the state. She had been abducted the night before, and all day, all of you know central Arkansas, we were all fixated on the search for her. And you had four law enforcement entities involved, working together, and constant broadcasts, you know, on television and radio, and of course, the Associated Press. So we were all, I think everyone in that part of Arkansas was just, the circumstances of her abduction were just so frightening. And on top of that, internet and the many advantages and pitfalls that accompany those, that people still didn't really have a good grasp of the internet and chat rooms and how teenagers were using those spaces to meet each other and to talk and to form friendships or relationships. And so I think that element of it is what really had everyone just glued to their screens. This is back before smartphones and all of that were like the norm. So we were relying um, basically just on phone calls and updates um, from journalists and, you know, just trying to figure out what was going on. And all of this happened very much in real time and very quickly. They had amazing luck and resources in being able to figure out who had taken her, where he had been, what he had been up to uh, prior to abducting her. And so, uh, you know, it all came together very quickly. Unfortunately, they did not find her in time. And once authorities were on the scene uh, and they figured out where he had taken her, he shot and killed himself. And she had already been murdered. Really, it was just a, a, a an unfolding race drama, you know, whatever, to find and save this girl. And it really was just devastating to everybody, you know, not just her friends in her community, but I mean, parents and law enforcement had been so hopeful throughout the day just because they were having so much success in trying to figure out what had happened that when, you know, they announced late that night uh, that, you know, they hadn't gotten there in time. It, it was just devastating. The heartbreak and shock around this case would only grow when more details emerged about how Casey's murderer had insinuated his way into her life. Like so many teenagers in the early 2000s, Casey used instant messaging to chat with friends. She also began joining Yahoo chat rooms to make new connections. That's how Casey befriended a person claiming to be an 18-year-old surfer named Dave Fagan. Unbeknownst to Casey, this was really a 47-year-old man named David Leslie Fuller. He lived in California. He had a history of domestic abuse, and his wife was divorcing him. He'd lost his job at a Saturn dealership because his supervisors suspected him of looking at child sexual abuse materials on the firm's devices. But on the side, he'd created a fake persona 
to join a Yahoo chat room meant for Christian teenagers. That's where he first encountered Casey. Here's Kathy Fry. This is when chat rooms were tremendously popular, not just with teenagers, but, you know, younger adults and and those who were really into what all of this new, you know, technology had to offer. And so most parents at that time were aware that they existed and were aware that their kids were using them. But I don't think they really understood exactly how chat rooms worked and, you know, who, who exactly was on them or participating in these conversations. In Casey's case, um, she uh, was encountering, you know, what people she believed to be boys, you know, teenage boys. And, you know, was kind of, I think for kids at that time, it was suddenly this very easy way to meet someone and uh, be able to claim a boyfriend or girlfriend and relationship status without the torture of asking somebody out and dating and, and all of that. Of course, the downside is, is that you didn't really know who you were talking to and you didn't really know if what they were telling you was true. And at that time, everyone was still very naive um, as to how the Internet could be used to exploit younger people, you know, children or teenagers. Uh, and even young adults were easy prey just because we knew so little about, you know, how predators would eventually come to use chat rooms and other platforms to find potential victims. And in Casey's case, um, she had uh, met a legitimate, you know, teenage boy. He lived in Georgia, and they struck up a friendship, and she also struck up a friendship with someone she believed to be a teenage boy, but who was actually, I believe he was 49 um, at the time, uh, a man living in California who already was having uh, issues with his wife a very messy divorce, and he also had been caught with child porn on his computer at work. So his life was pretty much unraveling during much of the time that he began chatting with Casey. Um, and the way that he operated, and, and, and you know, and it's the way that predators have classically operated and the way that they still do, he took advantage of the fact that she was a 13-year-old girl who'd lost her mom at a young age and who was very sympathetic to anybody else who either had suffered a loss um, or was expected to suffer a loss uh, because she, you know, she talked about her mom all the time and truly believed, you know, her mom was an angel looking after her. Her favorite song was uh, Alabama's Angels Among Us. And so... In this particular situation, Dave, the man she believed to be a teenage boy, used, uh, I think it was an aunt, a sick relative, and led her to believe, you know, over the course of their conversations that this woman didn't have long to live. And so he really keyed in to Casey's most vulnerable um, emotional area, and that was loss or impending loss. And... He, uh, you know, was able, 
he did get drop clues that he was not likely her age. He used very different terminology that her friends picked up on uh, because they talked to him too, you know, at sleepovers with Casey. And he used terms like groovy. And uh, they chalked it up at the time to the fact that he, he said he was from California. And it did turn out, you know, that he was from California. But again, you know, these are teenagers and he lives in another place and they're young. Some of them things that we might have seen as red flags, just, you know, they just didn't, they just didn't see them. And so he was able to not only convince Casey, but also her friends that he was a legitimate, you know, boyfriend. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle. But it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's R-O dot C-O slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Kathy would ultimately write a four-part series titled Caught in the Web that was published in December of 2003, a year after Casey's murder. We strongly encourage you to go read it. It's an excellent series full of wrenching details. For instance... She found that one of Casey's friends had become concerned about Casey's online activity. Here's Kathy. Uh, and 
it, with Casey, the, the most heartbreaking element is on the very same day she was abducted, the one of her friends had talked to a guidance counselor at the school and told her that Casey was talking to a boy online. Uh, and this was actually the, the she was worried about the legitimate teenage boy when she brought this up and you know the counselor called Casey in that very afternoon and and cautioned her and that night when Casey was taken she was in the midst of chatting with the legitimate teenage boy and they were even you know kind of poo-pooing the school guidance counselor's warnings and again, you know, people have to remember what it's like to feel invincible and young and like you know better uh, than your elders <laughs> because we have all been guilty of that at that age. And so on the very evening when she is recounting this conversation, she is abducted by a 49-year-old man who arrived in a van and fully equipped to stage an abduction and that part just really got to me and it, the fact that there were efforts made it's just that we as adults didn't really know the way in which to explain to teenagers the the dangers and why we were cautioning them and you know and this counselor really did an admirable job of of really trying to stress that this was Still very new territory for both kids and parents. And in this case, it just, the timing of it is, is just what was so absolutely just devastating to people. We're talking about the murder of Casey Woody in the context of the ongoing investigation into the Delphi murders. But it's important to step back and stress that, in many ways, the internet looked quite different in 2002 than it does now. Whatever the role online predators may have had in the Delphi case, these two murder cases don't offer a perfect direct comparison. Whoever killed Libby and Abby did so outdoors in the middle of an afternoon after they went for a walk along the Monon High Bridge. Casey was kidnapped from her home at night. Fuller began stalking Casey in a Yahoo chat room where many participants had usernames, but also provided a ton of personal information in their profiles. We don't know exactly how Libby first connected with Anthony underscore shots online, but it's likely that it was through a major social media platform like Instagram or Snapchat rather than a chat room. What we will say is that the online predators in both cases do share some characteristics. One of those traits is the ability to take the totally normal instincts of young people and twist them to their advantage. It's normal for adolescents to start wanting to explore the intimidating world of romance. Thinking back to when you were a teenager, dating your first girlfriend or boyfriend, or dealing with your painful crushes, or feeling like you'd buckled beneath your worries that you weren't desirable enough to find love— all of that felt deeply urgent. And for modern teens, the internet factors into all that. In 2015, Pew Research found that half of teenage respondents, quote, let someone know they were interested in them romantically by friending them on Facebook or another social media site. 
Add to that hormone-laced mix the fact that many kids start seeking out more independence during adolescence. That's often a very positive development. Teens don't want to be told how to dress or what activities to be involved in or what friends to hang out with. That can lead to secret keeping. No matter how close you were to your parents or guardians, we imagine that you kept certain information locked away from them. Not because you weren't close to them or that your bond had frayed, but because maybe you were embarrassed or ashamed or you just didn't feel you could express certain things. Well, predators take advantage of those two understandable instincts, the need to feel loved and the need for independence. They exploit the desires of their victim in the worst way possible for their own gratification. We don't know every single detail about how Anthony underscore shots gained and abused the trust of young girls. We don't even know for certain who exactly was running the account. Perhaps it was just Kagan Klein, given that the account was linked back to his devices. Maybe it was multiple individuals based in Klein's Peru, Indiana household, as police have suggested. Whoever it was would pose as an attractive model and would attempt to flatter and cajole girls into sending him intimate photos. Back in 2002, David Fuller adopted a profile picture of a young man with long, blondish hair. He claimed to be an 18-year-old guitarist living in San Diego. Meanwhile, as he continued to message and call Casey, he was engaging in a full-fledged stalking campaign. Here's Kathy. It was his plan all along. He'd even been to town to kind of case out the area. Uh, the same night that she's being crowned fall queen at a festival, he was in town kind of scoping things out. He also, they later found out after her murder that he had been grooming other girls in other states. I believe Texas was one of them, and I forget the other two that they mentioned at the time. One of those cases, he had sent a girl flowers and the father, and he was calling her too, which is what he did with Casey. He, he would talk to her on the phone too, not just, not just online. And so he had, he had he completely planned the whole thing. Uh, he had everything he needed. He had his van. He had taken the seats out. You know, he had everything he needed to subdue her, the chloroform, and then what he would use to tie her down. And so by the time he pulled into the driveway that night, he, he had meticulously planned what he was going to do. Did you catch what Kathy said about Fuller grooming other girls? Well, that should sound familiar to anyone digging into the Delphi case. Anthony underscore shots conversed with multiple underage girls in the same friend group. As we previously mentioned, the account messaged one of Libby's friends right after the murders with a story about a failed meetup. In the transcript, police also revealed that Anthony underscore shots messaged a girl who ended up sharing her address with him. Shortly after the murders, the girl reported that she caught a man in a ski mask peeking in her window. Libby German was abducted and murdered after talking with Anthony underscore shots. This other girl was seemingly stalked. In her series, 
Kathy reported the detectives were shocked when they couldn't find any other matches for David Fuller's DNA in a database of unsolved crimes. But that did not stop theories from forming. Here's Kathy. And the FBI always believed that this is not... Casey's abduction and murder uh, were not his first time, you know, especially given his age and the way that he mapped it out. And he had a career in which there was a lot of travel in places where he very easily could have victimized, you know, teenagers and young women. And there had been incidents where he had gotten in trouble in the States for behavior, you know, that triggered all sorts of alarm bells. Over the years, Casey Woody's loved ones have shared her story in a push to help educate other kids about the dangers they face online. I even saw a documentary about her case in middle school, and it's stuck with me ever since. But it's one thing for young people to become aware of the risks of interacting with strangers online. It's quite another for them to alter their behavior to be more cautious. Here's Kathy. Yeah, it... You know, I still remember after this series ran, that's back when MySpace was big, and I happened to see a check on my stepson's uh, MySpace page, and he was like, oh, y'all need to read this. You know, my stepmom wrote this series, et cetera, et cetera. And then I looked over to the left, and there's his full name, his phone number, the school he goes to. He had just just read this four-part series on not taking people at face value, you know, when you have not met them in person. Remember, the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that handles things like judgment and impulse control, does not fully develop until you're about 25. So younger people tend to be less risk-averse. Most of us, even those of us like Kevin and I, who were complete nerds in high school, took risks as teens. Instead of judging teens for being teens, let's instead look back at those times where we all gambled with our safety or well-being and be thankful that there was no predator lurking in the backdrop waiting to stalk and murder us. But Kathy said that in her experience, the so-called scared straight approach is not too effective anyway. You can't scare them into behaving or making good decisions. You cannot scare your kids, you know, your teenagers. You, you cannot frighten them with scary stories as an antidote, you know, because, again, they have a whole different mindset at that age. Being candid and honest and open and making it clear that you're always open to discussing whatever's going on. But telling the scary internet predator stories and expecting that to keep kids safe, no, it, it will not work. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. As we mentioned, the early web felt more unstructured, with so many young people connecting with strangers bearing wacky usernames and posting all sorts of embarrassments on sites like MySpace. For those of us who remember those days, the internet of today seems tamer, more settled. If the digital landscape of 2002 was a raucous Wild West saloon, then today it seems more like a well-ordered Panera Bread. We often use our real names. We can screen follow requests, generally. Our social media activity takes place on a select few platforms, depending on our age and interests. We post work stuff on LinkedIn, voice our opinions on Twitter, connect with friends and conspiracy-theorizing relatives on Facebook, share vacation photos on Instagram, dance and meme on TikTok, and shoot off quickly disappearing images on Snapchat. All of those profiles feel like little cloistered gardens, where we can choose to share as much of ourselves as we please. But that sense of security can be an illusion. Here's Kathy Fry. What I've noticed today is that there seems to be this comfort zone, even if you've never met this person in real life, and they're not somebody that you would have even encountered, if you're, say, on Facebook or, or any social platform, really, I think there's a heavy reliance on mutual friends. And you assume that since this person is friends with all these people that, you know, or who you do know in real life, um, that they must be safe uh, and, and, and it's okay to go ahead and accept their friend request. And assuming that somebody who is friends, you know, with other people that you know on Facebook, it, it's a very easy trap to fall into. And I've learned that the hard, hard way myself, you know, um, because it's easy for people to friend people or to reach out to them on any of these platforms or apps and may ever take advantage of the fact that, you know, you can use these mutual acquaintances and, and so forth in order to worm your way into somebody else's, you know, life essentially because yeah you're right we've got it we share everything you know photos and and all sorts of personal information there's also the fact that many parents and guardians often don't know what to make of the latest apps and online behaviors you can't monitor what you barely even understand here's kathy so you know i mean one of the things that applies both then and now is that Parents are intimidated by, because these things just get released all the time, these new apps and, and platforms. And that was very much the case with the old Yahoo chat rooms. They didn't really understand them, and they didn't really understand what their kids were doing on them or how they were using them. And I do think that as we've become more aware over the years, you know, speaking as a parent, that, you know, we at least better know how to warn our children and, 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 you know, 
how to tell them uh, or to make sure that they understand that they need to be careful and in what sort of precautions are available to them. There is so much available to them out there. And, you know, I think many of us have tried all different approaches. You know, I know parents who've like tracked their children's every move, their teenagers, every move online um, or on apps. And, but the simple fact is, is that realistically speaking, you can't, I ended up and a lot of my friends with, you know, teenagers finally came to the conclusion that what we really had to do was to make sure that our kids knew that they could always come to us, whether it was bullying going down on, you know, Instagram or TikTok or, you know, any of the other platforms, um, or they somebody was making them uncomfortable or just knowing to tell them what questions to ask or what to watch for because there's just really no way. It's like we've opened Pandora's box and it's just impossible. I mean, as soon as you, you might find out your child has been using an app inappropriately and, and you, you know, made them deleted and, or grounded them or, or whatever, then something else is going to take its place. And so I think that you have to develop some sort of a bond or trust uh, so that your kids not only know what to watch for and what to do, but so that they will feel comfortable in coming to you and saying, you know, something just does not feel right about this. Or so-and-so is being, you know, bullied and, and, tormented on a public platform and I'm really worried about the effects it's going to have, you know, or that this person is devolving because of this. And so that's why when I wrote the series about Casey, I really wanted to be able to show parents what it's like to be that age and what it was like then. And it's still very much applies to what it's like now today. A lot of the tech companies have been pressured into to putting more safeguards, you know, into place. Of course, we've seen the many flaws in those as well. And kids are creative and they're persistent. And, you know, you really, in today's world, internet world, it's really become more of an effort, I think, to be preventative which has helped to some degree. But again, in terms of technology, you're still dealing with parents. I'm a Gen Xer, and we were, our thing was Atari. <laughs> you know, <so laughs> And I considered myself, um, at the time that I covered this story, to be kind of moving along with technology as a reporter, you know, and saw the many benefits of the internet and all of that. I think where we end up confused and challenged is that technology and the capabilities have accelerated way beyond many adults means of being able to understand and, and react to, you know, all these new possibilities. So even though this is not all new, it's not the wild West anymore. We aren't all just kind of, you know, internet virgins trying to, you know, figure out who's who and what's what. The pace at which these companies release new platforms and new apps 
is just staggering. And for a parent, it's overwhelming. So um, we, we know a lot more and we know that there are precautions we can take and that companies, you know, can try to install safeguards and all of that. But at the same time, the speed in which things are advancing is always going to be against us. Combating Internet predators remains a complicated issue, just as it was in 2002. Here's Kathy. I remember uh, one of the investigators telling me that, you know, what was tricky now was that in the past, pedophiles and predators, you know, relied on traditional means of staking out victims and, and, you know, whether it was locating them, figuring out how best to get to them. You know, you had mail, you had traveling, and you had, in some cases, rings of people, predators, who worked together um, exchanging photos or information. And so once you introduced this whole online world, it not only opened up a way you know, for teenagers to make new friends um, and meet new people, it opened up a new way for predators to more effectively groom potential victims. They didn't have to. I mean, this man from California very, very deftly worked his way into her life and talked to her every day, built trust, cultivated her empathy for him, given this fictional, you know, dying relative. And, you know, in the past, you would have been depending on mail or they would have been looking more locally. So this just totally broadened his horizons. And he clearly was seeking to groom and, uh, I'm sure, abduct and, and kill other victims. And at the same time, he clearly had gone down to Arkansas from California, knowing that if things did not go well, that he was prepared to kill himself. By that time, he I forget what all he had done with his finances and, and all of that, but you could tell he knew that either he was going to get away with it and get to do it again, or that was going to be it. He would have, you know, at least fulfilled this one perverse desire of his, and then he was willing to die, you know, rather than face the consequences. Fuller was a sick, selfish individual who prioritized his own sexual gratification over the life of a young girl. He murdered Casey Woody. That crime left her family and friends devastated and traumatized her community. When we express our feelings about cases like this, we think it's important to put the blame where it belongs, squarely on perpetrators like Fuller. But unfortunately, in cases involving internet predators, where the perpetrators worm their way into the lives of their victims, there can be a rush to judgment. Kathy Fry saw that firsthand after Casey's death. And it was very easy, I think, for people to judge after what happened to Casey, you know, because her father was even a police officer. And it was this whole, well, you know, how could how could he not have known or, and, or how could the, you know, the adults in her life not have, you know, and it, you have to really remember what it is like to be a a, a girl or a boy that age. And I know my editors at the time 
they thought I included way too much information from like the school guidance counselor. I spent a lot of time with Casey's friends and because I really wanted people, you know, most of us are decades away from, from that time of life. I wanted people to remember and understand, you know, why this is a vulnerable population and to not blame kids or parents you know, for what happens online, whether that's back then or today. Um, I mean, these are victims, and it's important to remember that. And it was harder back then just because, again, it was also very new. We've seen this instinct to blame victims or their families crop up in the Delphi case, too. So we'll end with a thought that goes beyond just instances involving Internet predators When we're studying true crime cases, thinking, that could never happen to me, can be a comforting thought. We've both certainly been guilty of that. But that thought is rarely a helpful one. And it's almost certainly not true. We find it far better to think, there but for the grace of God go I. Here's Kathy to close us out. A lot of people listen to podcasts, true crime podcasts, or, or watch, you know, the true crime sh- dateline 48 hours and, and, you know, 2020, because in a strange and twisted way, we're thinking, oh, well, that's why this happened to that person, you know, and that's why it shouldn't happen to me or it couldn't happen to my loved ones. So we're listening to podcasts and watching these shows kind of to make ourselves feel better, you know, oh, it's a big, scary world, but if only that person had done this, or if only they'd looked into that, or if only they'd known to do that. I think that's where journalists and podcasters can make a difference. When you're telling these stories, this wasn't some sort of situation in which only a select type of group of people or a person, you know, would have been victimized by. You have to Make it clear that this is a, you know, this is not unusual. This is not a special case. This is not a situation that would never happen if only, you know, the the victim had done X, Y, or Z. It's something that happens all the time. And it's not just a matter of trying to make the victims and their families real people. It's also, I think, identifying and helping people find that bridge, you know, between victims and their families and themselves and their own families because you you cannot in any of the cases that I have ever covered including you know Casey's it could have happened to anybody and you cannot listen to shows and podcasts um, or watch them and and think that you're going to either learn how to protect yourself and, and your family your family members, because that's not the point. The point is, is, okay, this is how this happened. This is why it is so awful and so tragic. These were people who you could probably identify with on so many different levels, and, but you're not exempt and you're not any any more educated or any more prepared. I, I guess what I'm saying is it's important to not instill this sort of false confidence. You know, people should not be listening to true crime podcasts or watching true crime shows because they think this is going to help them be better prepared or to somehow make them more, you know, likely to to fend off something bad 
happening to them or to their loved ones. And so it's not just a matter of making everyone more understandable or more real. It's also making it clear that this was not just a fluke and it's not something that you necessarily could have thwarted. And I guess that's really what, you know, I think matters because you've got any number of teenagers who would listen to some of these, you know, stories of what happened to kids their age. And they, of course, are feeling all invincible and, oh, well, I wouldn't be that stupid or I wouldn't do that or I would make sure. And then you have parents who think that they are learning from these shows. Okay, so predators do this and they act this way. And so all I have to do is make sure that my my child would never do this online or make this stupid decision online. And that is the key to really making the sharing of these stories effective. And we all have our areas of weakness and predators uh, are very savvy and they are very good at identifying those weaknesses and playing off of them. And so just looking at one other person's uh, vulnerability, you know, okay, yes, Casey had lost her mom and he, he was able to work with that. It, it could be anything from a, a, an insecure teenager who worries about her appearance to a child who already has been victimized and therefore more likely to be re-victimized. There's just no, there's no way to hear these stories and just assume that, well, now that I've heard this, I know, you know, what to do to keep my, my family safe because that's a false sense of security. Thanks very much to Kathy Fry for sharing her insights with us. Again, we're linked to her series for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette in our show notes. We'll also link to the University of New Hampshire paper we cited, which was put together by Janice Wolak, David Finkelor, Kimberly J. Mitchell, and Michelle L. Ibarra. And we'll link back to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children page on online enticement. To our surprise, we've gotten a number of requests from people saying they would like a way to help financially support our efforts with the show. So, if you are interested, we are relaunching a Patreon page, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. Join us there for two live video question and answer sessions each month. You can ask us anything, suggest new cases for us to look at, or even offer ideas for new leads for us to follow. If Patreon is not your thing, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. Thanks for the interest. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MurderSheet and on Facebook at MSheetPodcast or by searching MurderSheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to MurderSheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>